0: I'm South Dakota Governor Christy Noem, and welcome to the Sturgis Book Rally. Here to help us super-spread the literacy is Dr. Dabney Nair, author of Benjamin Harrison, and American Life. You don't have to wear that mask, Dr. Nair.
1: But I chose it to match my tie.
0: All right. We don't have a mandate one way or another in this liberty-loving state, so... Let's get started. I understand that President Harrison is the reason that South Dakota exists. Is that correct?
1: Yes. He signed legislation that admitted South Dakota to the Union on November 2nd, 1889.
0: All right. We should certainly thank him for that. What else can you tell me about this great patriot?
1: He was a Republican and a devout Christian.
0: I like him already. What else?
1: He fought to allow freedmen to vote in the South.
0: Thank you. I think it's important that more people realize that the Republicans, as the party of Lincoln, have always been the true supporters of civil rights in America. What else?
1: And he worked in conjunction with an activist Congress to expand the role of the federal government in the U.S. economy.
0: All right. Thank you for your time, Dr. Nair. I have just decided this program is a waste of taxpayer funds, and I'm canceling it right now.
1: Will you give me back that free copy of my book?
0: I don't think so.
2: Coming to you from Chicago, Illinois, D.B. Comedy presents... The Electables, presidential sketch comedy and history for people who can't afford Hamilton. Today, President 23, Benjamin Harrison. Thank you for enjoying DB Comedy Presents The Electables. If you would like to keep supporting us, please consider a donation or tip. Go to FracturedAtlas.org, the nonprofit fiscal sponsor of DB Comedy Presents the Electables, and leave us a gift. Your donation is tax deductible to the fullest extent allowed by law and will be used to keep us on the air and in the algorithms. Thank you. okay let us re- shall we reintroduce ourselves very quickly by first name because um, if you're fans you know who you who you are and if you're not you're going to be a fan and you'll listen to some of our back episodes to catch up with everybody so joe oh. i'm joe okay
3: sandy Sylvia. <laughs> i'm
4: patrick
5: i'm chelsea
4: hey can I advance this? I think this might be some good comedy material for you. My my theory of why we have a bunch of like people with, I, I would say, peculiar personal traits in throughout the 19th century, um, because one, we have the good enough historical records at this point that people are like recording, like what these people are like on a day to day basis. But at the same time, we don't have national media that's developed to the extent that what you should sound, act, and look like is being beamed into your house on a daily basis. And so I think this this before the rise of television and picture magazines going into everybody's house on a daily basis, which is starting in this era, but was not really present when these people were growing up, that that left people with a lot more individual space to develop their own personalities Right, And so if there's not a model For this is the way you're supposed to Look, sound, and act Then you're going to look, sound, and act Like you think you should look, sound, and act mm-hmm.
6: That would be someone with gigantic mutton chops
4: And so,
2: gigantic
6: men
4: And I think that oh. if you look at A lot of the other political leaders You know, I, I read the great book Basically it was A survey of Europe Prior to World War One, And kind of looking at the different people who were involved in kind of making the decision to take the world the war and they were some bizarre people it, it included a, a prime minister of great britain this was back in the early 1900s who as uh, his kind of daily exercise routine was to put on a purple cloak and get on a tricycle and
6: <laughs> why do you consider that bizarre please don't stop. please continue
3: describing this <laughs>
4: It and the benefit cloak. of the purple cloak and get on a tricycle and go from, you know, Westminster Hall, where the where Parliament meets up to Buckingham Palace. And apparently when it was time for Prime Minister's audience with the Queen, this was how he would do it. He would just take his tricycle up there to Buckingham Palace and and call on the Queen at that point. More power um,
2: to <laughs> Are we now discussing Benjamin Harrison? Um. Well, yes. Yeah, so, Jim, did Benjamin Harrison ride around in a purple cloak on a tricycle? Not so, as far as I know. Okay. uh Benjamin Harrison, who a very quick one-term president, or the warm, you know, the guy that warmed the seat in between Grover Cleveland presidencies? You make the call, or I suppose we should, because that's our—that's
3: sort you of got to have do. been a better way to phrase that, Joe. <laughs> did he warm Grover's
2: seat? That's yeah. A whole new scandal. Well, is it because one of the accounts said that he was his one of his nicknames was iceberg because it was sort of a reflection of how of his personality such as it was?
6: <laughs> he was as bland as lettuce.
2: Yeah.
5: Oh, <laughs> uh, remind me when we get to Calvin Coolidge to tell my favorite silent cal story.
2: Oh, you got it. <laughs> no problem. But first we have to get through Benjamin Harrison and a few yeah. others. So, yeah. well, he- Let's
6: see, his great-great-grandfather signed the Declaration of Independence. His grandfather was president for 30 days and had a pedigree. Mm -hmm. But uh, he started his legal career in Cincinnati but found it too
2: crowded and bustling. So he went to Indianapolis. (laughs) That was probably... Again, in those days, that was probably more bustling than... We, we give it credit for now, because that was the West in those days. Wild West. Wild West. Uh, not quite the Midwest, but getting there. Another, another Civil War veteran, although we're getting close to the end of uh, Civil War veterans uh, running, and by the way, we, we, we actually have talked about how important that was certainly for in a few elections. Are we finally getting to the point that it's not as important or are we finally in an era where presidents sort of have to prove a bona fide in some way shape or form by saying that they were they had some form of military service?
1: Well,
6: he replaced a draft dodger in Cleveland. So I would say for Republicans, yes, it's still an issue. I don't think the Democrats would have ever even put up a, put up a Union soldier for the presidency. Yeah.
4: That would have been problematic in some ways. Um, <laughs>
6: Sylvia, you're now our resident Southerner as well as our resident
7: <laughs> feminist. Uh, yeah, I, found... I don't see that happening. You, know, I, I, mm-hmm. I mean, you don't have many people in the Confederacy who are moving forward to be
3: president
7: and uh, yeah.
3: Whereas uh, Benjamin Harrison, was with Sherman on the Atlanta campaign, the Watch to the Sea.
2: Well, and and when we talk about the 1888 election, all of this is rather relative as I'm looking, because um, Harrison actually tried to be, was, was denied becoming senator again. And as this passage reminds me, in that era, senators were voted in by state legislatures, Not the popular vote. That wouldn't happen until 1913, 1914. So he missed out becoming a senator, decides to run for president. Our pal James Blaine couldn't secure everything. I was going to
5: say, he was fifth, though, on the initial ballot that Republicans took at their national convention. Yeah,
2: they're fifth. fifth. Isn't that a tradition, though? I think that Garfield was, he wasn't even on the first ballot
5: okay Fine.
2: yeah yeah he it was eight ballots for uh, eight ballots when i've done research on the
6: election of 1888 i'm so sorry that our listeners can't see my background the only thing (laughs) that i can find that comes close to an issue is a speech cleveland made about the tariff like late in 1880 1887 in his address to congress when he advocated for lower tariffs And somehow that brought 88% of the voters out. Well,
2: Well, that. mm -hmm.
5: uh, I mean, that is partly because of kind of not directly related to what James is talking about, but the constriction of uh, economic opportunity, right, makes people really nervous when you start talking about imposing tariffs, so, I'm sure people were as people were really excited about a tariff question <laughs> that really gets people out there when you have Apparently, such economic that. when you have such economic issues.
2: <laughs> the campaign such as it was, and here I thought Garfield was the one that campaigned on his front porch. No, it was actually Harrison who we had a series that. of little mini speeches on his front porch in Indianapolis. Grover Cleveland had one speech that he did for his campaign. And in the end, Cleveland won, if you consider the popular vote. the the But we don't in this country, it is the electoral college and womp womp uh, because Cleveland couldn't secure his home state. So
7: New York was the swing state. New York was election? the
2: swing state. And um, in Indiana. And Indiana, even though Harrison lost the city of Indianapolis <laughs> somehow
0: I tell you when the hometown guys don't get
7: your support, that's but, like that's an immediate. But trick the rest
2: right. of the states somehow magically voted for Harrison and there he is. And now, ladies and gentlemen, it is my privilege to introduce this nation's 23rd president, Mr. Benjamin Harrison. Thank you all for this warm,
6: dry welcome to Washington. The country's doing well. Um, Western territories, heartland values, Gilded Age, you get the
2: idea. Thank you. Mr. Harrison, aren't you going to make a speech? I think I just did. That was it? Don't you want to outline your policies or perhaps explain the aims of your administration? Nope.
6: I just want to get back to the White House, lock the door, and go to bed.
2: What? Surely you'll be attending the inaugural balls. The elite of our fair capital will all be there. Oh, let me think. Drinking and smoking
6: in a fetid swampland full of mosquitoes, uh, no, too many ways to die.
2: You're a man in good health. I find it hard to believe... Listen, I'll level with you. You know who my grandfather was, yes? Archibald
6: Irwin. That's right. Uh, What? No, no, the famous one, my father's father.
2: Oh, yes, well, President William Henry Harrison, yes, oh, I'm quite sorry, his passing was an unfortunate accident. It was no accident. As it turns out, Grandpappy was supposed to die fighting
6: Tecumseh way back when, but he didn't. After that, death was owed one life and had to balance the ledger. Now, Grandpappy was smart enough to avoid death for a long time, but then he got elected president... And he knew his number
2: was up. You're saying that as soon as he made the White House his destination? Yes. Death made sure it would be his
6: final destination.
2: What does that have to do with you? Well,
6: my parents and I were supposed to be at that inauguration.
2: And now death is owed
6: your life. Exactly. And the easiest time to kill any Harrison is on Inauguration Day. Keep in mind that my grandfather was a veteran of two and a half wars who was brought down by drizzle. Is that why you're wearing that giant overcoat? Not to mention a full suit of armor under it.
2: But, sir, no president has been shot at since Garfield. That's what Garfield said about Lincoln. I'll also be avoiding everything that's ever
6: killed a sitting president. The milk and cherries that took down Taylor. The boat trip that almost killed Tyler. Of course I'm avoiding the theater altogether.
2: Because Lincoln was shot at by an actor.
6: Uh, Actually, I find modern drama contrived. I'm not about to get
2: bored to death. So what will you be doing?
6: Standing back to back with my wife, Caroline, and holding knives while we wait out the dawn.
2: Is that really conduct befitting a United States president? Fuller, if
6: I didn't follow this conduct, they'd be fitting me for a coffin right now. See what they did there? Why I,
2: I? Hey, look! That workman has dropped his hammer. Oh, and it's hit that carriage horse. And now the wheels have launched that pitchfork into the air. It goes up, must come down. It struck that man in the chest.
6: His name is Wilhelm, I believe.
2: Oh, no! He, he's falling from that abovement! Straight onto that loose board. What was that on the other end? What did he just upset? Most of the witnesses in a bucket of nails, I believe. Oh! They're raining down on the crowd! Oh! That poor photographer bleeding from his head, but still trying to ply his craft. Get down! Why are you laying down?
5: Get
6: down on the ground! The flash powder in his camera is as strong as what they use in cannons. With about 20 nails in his pan, I would reckon...
2: Oh.
6: Sorry about that, Fuller, but I warned you. Happy Inauguration Day.
2: Mm -hmm. and as i'm looking at a little bit of his pre-presidential uh cv um yeah well i'm i'm an academic i'm sort of an academic uh it says it 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 says that he was a defender of native american rights a defender of pensions for veterans um
5: the chinese exclusion act
2: very a vocal and eloquent uh Opponent of the Chinese Exclusion Act, or uh, on that later. Sounds kind of. A, I mean, again, for people that really thought they were getting some reform with Grover Cleveland and didn't, and they hear that word and that's important. Um, there's some things about him going into the presidency that could be kind of attractive.
4: Um, well, and I, I think that that Harrison's civil rights credentials were reasonably strong for. For the time,
6: I agree with uh, that. Mm-hmm.
4: You know, his efforts to defend the voting rights of African Americans, his rejection of the Chinese Exclusion Act. You know, and I think you could even say that his efforts to pass the Sherman Antitrust Act it, it engendered that he was concerned with the level to which, you know, monopolies and, and large corporations were starting to impact uh, American life you know, ultimately, politically, Harrison was was undone by two major things. One was the fact that he, unlike Cleveland, increased federal spending, uh, because, you know, I guess he gave a damn about people and Cleveland didn't. The billion dollar Congress. Right. But also, I, I, like many people who, you know, kind of the, uh, I'll call it the, the Jennifer Granholm problem, uh, wanted to do a lot of political spending at the same time that the economy absolutely deteriorated and that can be problematic. And for Harrison, it was. This is
5: another kind of issue that keeps recurring from our last episode even, or our, the, our last you know recording session. That even if Harrison supports African-American voting rights, he is not about to send federal troops down to the South to make sure that African Americans can vote, right? Because at that point, it becomes a race issue and it becomes a political issue.
2: And right? by the Aren't way, you? and by the way, he appoints um, Frederick Douglass as the mi- American minister in Haiti. So right. Frederick but, Douglass not in the not in country during this.
5: The point being that he's not going to ruffle any white folks feathers in order to defend african-american folks
6: but wouldn't you say Even though, if he
5: believed in that
6: if lodge's bill if the force bill had been passed wouldn't don't you say he would have been a little bit more willing to do so if he'd ever gotten the chance which he wasn't going to
7: it's not
5: a it's popular stance right now right he's a veteran of the civil war it's not a popular stance to wave the bloody shirt anymore that's that is passed No one, Hmm. that that doesn't get you anywhere. People just say, ah, you're being divisive now.
6: And it was never a problem again.
4: (laughs) There's always the temptation to link high political spending to economic misfortune. There's no evidence that those two things are related, but you can always make the argument. And when the even though cleveland comes in in 1892 the panic of 1893 is not till 1893 as the name suggests it was not doing particularly well in 1891 or 92 and i think that a lot of elections are basically you know there's a strong evidence to suggest that economic conditions in the six months prior to an election are one of the main determining factors of it and poor economic performance in late 1892 Probably cost Harrison a second term. You mean you mentioned the Sherman Antitrust Act? And again, this is are we are we
2: arguably at the height of the power of the robber barons right now, or are we still getting? The, are we still building? Are you talking about eighteen ninety or today?
4: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I, I call them, I them something
2: it. different now. <laughs> Bezos
4: if you're going to kind of track the power of industry in America. So I think that we're kind of, we're, we're building to one of the high points here. I, I don't know if we're quite there yet. Um, I think that the economic power of the economic elite or the political power of the economic elite is still building up until the eve of the First World War. Okay.
5: And I would actually argue to some extent that, that political or that economic elites, their power is maybe expanding expanding or broadening, right? Because if you think in the 1870s and even into the early 1880s, right? Like railroads were how you made your money. But now that we're getting into the 1890s, you're making your money by manufacturing as well, right? Mm-hmm. Like mass production. And so you're getting a whole new class of, of economic elites,
6: so, oh, Sylvia and Sandy, I'm considering you are in-house feminists, although I don't know if you, Chelsea, maybe you adopt the, uh, okay, yeah, I okay, I I think
0: we'll call Chelsea as well.
6: Okay, um, so how gross is it that Benjamin Harrison was in love with his niece?
7: I don't I think you really think need think to be a be... feminist to yeah, find need... that gross, <laughs> right? No, so, non-feminist yeah, would be fine with it, so, yeah, no. <laughs>
2: see, now we're wishing for purple cloaks and tricycles, aren't we? <laughs> niece by marriage, but still. Oh, man.
0: Hmm.
6: Antitrust act. Signed. Oh, hello, niece ma'am. Why didn't you knock?
7: I'm too afraid you'd turn me away, Uncle Ben. I brought you something to eat. Why did you skip dinner? Have you been a naughty president? No,
6: just too busy with my official duties to notice it's supper time. Uh, Let's see. Silver Purchase Act, signed.
7: It's not dinner time, Uncle Ben. It's midnight. And if you looked up from your work, you'd see a full moon in the sky over the White House. A lover's moon, as they say in Paris.
6: Huh, so there is. Well, thanks for supper. I'll leave it and I'll have it later. All right. Forest Preserve Act. Signed.
7: Speaking of preserves, aren't you ravenous? Man doesn't live by work alone. Have you no normal human appetites? No
6: time for him. The people's business never relents. Here we are, admitting Idaho.
7: Signed. Idaho. You the hoe, We all the hoe. <laughs> America is so lucky to be under you, Uncle Ben. I can't wait to serve as a surrogate for poor, sick Aunt Caroline on the campaign trail. I'll sing your praises and you'll be reelected in a landslide.
6: Ah, I appreciate your enthusiasm, niece ma'am, but I fear my fellow Republicans don't share it. They despise me because I don't shower them with patronage jobs. Ah, what's this now? Treaty of Berlin. Signed.
7: Well, those nasty Republicans don't deserve any jobs you might offer them. But when the people learn of your ceaseless efforts on their behalf, they'll be on their knees before you.
6: Oh, sadly, my diligence may cost me my job. Southern Democrats, loathe the vigorous federal government. That's why I lost the popular vote in 1888. Jim Crow laws prevent the Republican Party's most loyal constituency, Freedmen, from casting ballots. Oh, not that leaving Washington will be a tragedy. Oh, how I've missed Indianapolis. Okay. Board of Geographic Names.
7: Signed. You'll have to show me some new places on the map. Perhaps you should find ways to relax, Uncle Ben.
6: How, niece Mame? Hunting is my greatest pleasure, but I've no time for it. And now, Meat Inspection Act. Signed.
7: Meat inspection? Should be a woman's responsibility. Maybe you can let pleasure hunt you instead, Uncle Ben. For example, would you like to see what's under my cloche?
3: Well,
6: I suppose I must, seeing as I'll have no peace until I do. I admit, what you bought smells tempting.
7: Well, indulge your appetite. Voila. Are
6: those oysters on a bed of asparagus?
7: With chocolate-covered figs for dessert. Oh,
6: goodness. I'm grateful for your concern about my subsistence, but these dishes, niece Mame,
7: Aren't they delectable? I chose them myself and ensured the kitchen staff prepared them to irresistible succulence.
6: And you have me on the verge of drooling. Still, I don't mean to be vulgar, but every single ingredient has a reputation for awakening certain... passions in a man, shall we say.
7: Do they? Gracious. I had no idea.
6: Oh, niece-man, you dear, sweet, innocent lamb. I don't mean to cast aspersions on your purity. But uh, your Aunt Caroline is so fragile, I uh, shouldn't like to awaken her later with um, unwanted and unsavory attentions.
7: I'll make sure you don't have to do that, Uncle Ben. Here, I brought us some potables. Let me thrust this upon you. Let's toast Aunt Caroline's health with some cider.
6: Wait, cider? Is it
7: hard? You tell me, Uncle Ben.
6: Hard cider maybe aided the election of Grandfather William Henry, but, uh, niece Mame, I'm a man of temperance.
7: Doesn't a wise man pursue even temperance with temperance?
6: Well, it might provide me courage to try the oysters. Oh my, that's the sweetest thing I've ever had upon my lips in my life.
7: So far, at least. Is this your first time devouring an oyster, Uncle Ben? Let me be your teacher. All you need do is open your throat and let the ecstasy slide into you.
6: Down the hatch. Huh, it goes down smoother than I expected. How did God bless me with such a generous, beautiful niece?
7: You married my aunt Caroline.
6: Ah, uh, speaking of marriage, this feast is giving me some strange ideas. I've hardly the vocabulary to express them.
7: I know plenty of French. Maybe I can be of assistance.
6: Maybe you can. Niece Mame, have you a sturdy pair of knees?
7: What on earth do you have in mind, Uncle Ben?
6: That we should kneel and pray for the Lord to provide you with a suitable husband.
7: Ha. Ah. Good night, Uncle Ben.
6: What was that all about? Oh well, who can understand the ways of women? Act of
2: business. Judiciary Act. Signed. Harrison does something that we see presidents do a lot more in the 20th century when things aren't going so well on the home front. They look abroad. And. I'm looking because it looks because Harrison is really seems to be one of the first presidents to sort of consciously try to create what we would call a foreign or a f- foreign policy, uh, which we start to see in huge way, particularly
3: when we get to McKinley. But um, Do I think the Monroe Doctrine might have something to say about that.
2: Yeah, but how many presidents really did stuff? Like you say, he sent uh, Frederick Douglass to Haiti He uh, there's there was apparently an incident in New Orleans where 11 Sicilians were killed in a mob hit and he went to the Italian government to propose it. Um, There's uh, there. He he cut a deal with Britain and Canada about over harvesting
3: seals. I mean, Thomas Jefferson had the whole thing in Tripoli. (laughs) I <laughs> still and, have course, a song about it but
2: jefferson was a long time ago even by then i mean again in in what we think of as sort of a modern era that's something that we see presidents do over and over and over again he really seems to be the first of the, he seems like after him you see presidents do it all the time but you, and and especially given that not much was going on in his presidency
3: although yeah uh even on the home front, Harrison was uh, was all about expanding the American Empire, because he brought in uh, the most states uh, that ever most? came in during a single president. He brought in six, six states, of them. although only one of them counts. That's right, I said it. We only need one Dakota. Come at me. <laughs> Come on, Washington. He brought in Washington. Washington yeah, is pretty. That's cool. the one state. We don't need a Montana
2: we need idaho for the potatoes
3: Eh, i'll give idaho a pass (laughs) (laughs) and also wyoming i don't have anything to say about wyoming because there's nothing to say about wyoming there i've insulted them all
4: we need wyoming just so that we have the like the state which represents wide open spaces of nothingness right like Wyoming is always the go to, at least in the continental United States, for saying, Wow, this state is is filled with natural beauty and absolutely no human beings.
0: The epitome of the wild
4: west. Well, I mean
3: that that's why we brought in North Dakota, because people could come in from all around to see the tree. <laughs>
4: We should. I, I want to talk a little bit about the midterms, just in terms of, oh, like, because, while well, a do nothing Congress has often been used as a political football for presidents, and and it, it, to some extent successfully, uh, certainly in Harry Truman's case, being a do nothing Congress has never been politically costly for the actual people in Congress. It's when Congress does stuff that they tend to lose their seats. When Congress just sits there and doesn't do anything, people tend to reelect those guys. And Congress so if you want civil
6: rights legislation, they get voted out.
4: Right. Or passes health care reform, gets voted <laughs> out, passes relief for Americans in economic despair. They get voted out I mean, in even war. in 1934. Right. Like the, the Democrats did much worse in 1934 than they did in, in 1932. So. If if you're looking for one of the root causes of of American political dysfunction, it's the fact that Americans don't like it when their legislators do things and continually vote in the people who do nothing. And then we're like, well, why doesn't Congress do anything? I wonder why. Well, this is all
2: this is all leading us to the election of 1892. This, This is going somewhere. (laughs) We <laughs> yeah, well, well, we're going somewhere because we have a couple really, other places we got to get to. It's <laughs> all
5: going to Teddy Roosevelt. That's really yeah. what we're leading
2: up. To. Yeah, we got it. We got a couple of places we got to get to ourselves. Um, so we've established that Harrison is probably not on the strongest of grounds to get reelected, and then he did
6: face a historic shellacking in the eighteen ninety midterms because Congress was so productive. That America voted it out of office,
2: right? That is huge true. Yeah. turnover in the House. Yes, but then we get to 1892, and again unrest in the summer before an election. What could go wrong, right? Um, you have the Homestead Steel Strike of 1892, Thank also you, referred Andrew to as Andrew Carnegie. And card, yes, which also known as the Homestead Massacre. Could I- Things are looking bad. You have the Homestead Strike, which turned into, yes, turns into a major, Woof, boy, puts back the labor movement, God knows how much, for many decades. Kind of uh, interesting. When you read about the
6: Homestead Strike, one history will say that the strikers
2: caused the massacre. One history will
6: say that the Pinkertons were the aggressors. Mm-hmm. All we know yeah. is... That's All how we-
5: historians work. We argue with each other. That's called job <laughs> <gab> security.
6: <laughs> um, Andy, you're, you're the folk musician. Are there any good songs based on the homestead steel strike?
5: Ooh, there has to be.
7: I'm looking it up. That's that I know of.
2: The, so the strike is one thing. And then during the campaign... Harrison, and who knows if he really wanted to be president by the time the presidency was coming to an end. Oh, his wife passes away October 25th, 1892. Yeah, Yeah. doesn't provide a lot of
6: Cleveland ceases to campaign, not that he ever done much of it. Uh,
3: but also, I I just want to say about the 1892 election, (laughs) there's there's meat grinding going on in the
4: background. (laughs) That's a euphemism I've ever heard before. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> what kind of cookies are you guys making <laughs> <And> cat food <laughs> yeah.
3: making cat food uh um, hey, food but 1892 1892 is a cool election uh in some ways uh, because it is the uh the beginning of the actual populist party Yeah, uh James Weaver. which they actually won a surprisingly large portion of the vote they got eight percent of the vote and
6: 22 uh, electoral votes and five
3: they carried five states, uh, which is a lot for a third-party candidate. Mm-hmm. Um, but this is that also the first. It's also the first uh, time when the Socialist Labor Party uh, put it's up a candidate. The rise of socialism. Uh, even though their platform was uh, included, abolishing the position of president and vice president, they still ran a presidential candidate. <laughs> <in the election. laughs>
5: Makes me really happy.
4: Gotta okay.
3: love third parties sometimes, man.
4: And and that's definitely the, the that was the high point for third parties in in American political history. I don't know that. I, I think that did they in eighteen ninety six did they win a, maybe a couple of states? Wallace and was, then like uh, no again uh, in ninety six. And,
2: and George Wallace won some states in sixty eight. And right. of course, there's the bull. There's the Teddy Party, the Bull Moose. Mm-hmm.
4: So in some ways the late 19th and early 20th centuries are really kind of the high high point of of third parties in American political history which i think shows that there was as as the country becomes more diverse you really have a lot of divergent political movements that are having a hard time making nice with other political movements like we talked about how the democratic coalition is really bizarre And in some ways, eventually you simply can't become political or, you know, you're going to struggle to be political allies with people to which your only similarity is that you don't like the people who are currently in power. (music) Who's claiming Harrison? Is it Ohio or Indiana?
5: Oh, Indiana for sure. Have you watched Parks and Rec?
4: Well, we can, well, he was born in Ohio,
2: but because uh, our friend Tommy is actually, as of this recording, in Iceland, uh, he will not get a chance to defend the honor of Indiana. Not that he does it a lot, but still, so we'll grant him to Indiana. There, not that it done. deserves
3: it.
1: Hi, I'm Tommy Spears, the voice of Dr. Nair and the foremost proponent of Wig Hop. I grew up in Indianapolis, and as the podcast's resident Hoosier, I've been asked to say a few words about President Benjamin Harrison. And that's hard to do because he's incredibly boring. In school, learning Indiana history, we talked more about William Henry Harrison than Benjamin, and that guy was comatose for his whole presidency and wasn't even from Indiana. I mean, look, when I was in college... My mom took the whole family to the Benjamin Harrison house for a croquet tournament. If you can't picture a croquet tournament, it's like a golf tournament, but even more boring and even more white. And his house wasn't even the most interesting house on the block. I don't know what you expected from us. I mean, we're the state that gave you Dan Quayle, the vice president who can't spell potato, and Mike Pence, the vice president who can't be alone with women without a chaperone. We're not exactly batting a thousand for the executive branch. Ben Harrison is the best just by virtue of not being the worst, and that's all there is to him. Tommy, there has to be something to say about Benjamin Harrison. Yeah, he's your state's only president.
7: Oh, that's right. (laughs) I forgot. Some states only have one president.
1: Us Us two. But Indiana's not like Ohio or Virginia. We don't have cool presidents who had affairs in White House closets, or, or terrible presidents who screened Birth of a Nation. We've just got a guy who's very loosely responsible for the Wounded Knee Massacre. Uh, he married his niece? That's something. Not a crime in Indiana. Uh, didn't he have something to do with Garfield? You're thinking of Jim Davis. He's from Marion.
7: Was Harrison the guy on Barney Miller?
1: That's Detective Ron Harris, played by Ron Glass, from Evansville. Didn't he do Magnificent Ambersons? Booth Tarkington, Indianapolis. I meant the movie. Oh, and Baxter from Michigan City, which is for some reason in Indiana. But uh, Harrison's candidacy was interesting. He ran from prison. That's Eugene Debs from Terre Haute. Well, who was Harrison from then? A small town? That's John Mellencamp from Seymour. The guy who wrote Hurt So Good? That's John Cougar. Same guy, but we count him twice. He's sort of our Bruce Springsteen. Oh, God, that's true, isn't it?
0: Didn't he help establish Chinese democracy?
1: That's Axel Rose from Westfield. He's our. Well, he's our Axel Rose. Was he nasty? Janet Jackson.
3: Moonwalk?
1: Michael Jackson. Spacewalk? Gus Grissom from Mitchell, but he never actually walked in space, just the first manned flight. No spacewalk, huh? Must be tough. You Buckeyes put one guy on the moon and seven in the White House, and you never showed up about it.
2: Was he responsible for an American tragedy? That's author Theodore Dreiser from Terre Haute. Wait, Harrison, the handsome ballet guy they tried to handicap.
1: That's Harrison Bergeron, who's not strictly from Indiana, but he's from a story by Kurt Vonnegut, who is. So, it goes. Did he do the popcorn thing? Orville Redenbacher, Brazil, Indiana. With the flight guy? That's Orville Wright, and he's from Ohio, but his brother Wilbur was born in Millville, and he actually flew the plane.
7: So Harrison wasn't the king of cool,
0: so what?
1: You're thinking of Steve McQueen, born in Beach Grove.
0: Actually, I'm thinking of James Dean from Marion.
1: Ooh, that's a good one, too. Harrison was famous, though. Everybody knew his name. Nope. Shelley Long, Fort Wayne. Was he at least funny? Sorry, but that's David Letterman from Indy. Or Red Skelton from Vincennes. Tommy, you have to say something nice. The man had a heart. The man had a soul. You're just quoting Hoagie Carmichael from Bloomington.
3: Hey, Harrison had a baby face or something, right? Do you mean R&B singer Babyface? Oh, wait, no, I meant the baby torso. Adam
1: Driver of Mishawaka. Look, Harrison is a nobody. He didn't make a fortune like Madam C.J. Walker or write a masterpiece like Lou Wallace. Hell, he never even cooked chicken like Indiana's own Colonel Sanders. Hey, you can't claim Colonel Sanders. Kentucky gets Colonel Sanders. He was born in Henryville. But there's really absolutely nothing interesting to say about Benjamin Harrison. If you all want to celebrate him, then I guess let's hear it for the boy.
3: Denise Williams. Do
1: you guys know she's from Gary? So he's just some bland Hoosier who is competent at his job without being flashy or interesting. That's all you see in him? That's all I see in Larry Bird. I don't see anything in Harrison. He's just there. Kind of like Indiana. Sometimes good, sometimes bad usually racist it's a place you leave all my life i wanted to leave my hometown i mean no one believed in me or any of my working class friends so the first chance i got i climbed on a bike to prove myself okay I'm gonna
2: stop you that's the plot of breaking away with uh, daniel stern and dennis quaid yeah you're right
1: and shouldn't we all be watching that instead of having this conversation Maybe. Yeah, we yeah. yeah. could use yeah. some really <laughs> doing stuff. Could, you know, Very uplifting. Watchman.
7: So, what part of Indiana are you from anyway?
1: Columbus, Ohio. Um,
7: Here
1: I just
5: is. want to point out that Benjamin Harrison makes a uh an appearance in the greatest show ever parks and recreation um Oof. because he is a son of Indiana. Go look at
3: Also it. also William Je- uh William Henry Harrison also is a major part of that show as well. Yes. And so uh, we
2: went, so I'm going to put a button on our Benjamin Harrison episode by putting a button on the Benjamin Harrison
3: episode. Wait, wait. A, a Benjamin wait, wait, button? Wait, wait, wait.
2: DB <laughs> Comedy presents The Electables. This episode's sketches were written and produced by Gina Bucola, Sandy Baikowski, Joseph Fidorko, Ramona Jouet, Sylvia Mann, Paul Moulton, Patrick J. Riley, and Tommy Spears. This episode's sketches were performed by. By Gina Bacola, Sandy Bakowski, Joseph Fedorko, Sylvia Mann, Paul Moulton, Patrick J. Riley, Tommy Spears, and Louise Thomas. Original music written and performed by Throop McClurg. Audio production by Joseph Fidorko. Sound effects procured at freesound.org. Contributions to DB Comedy are graciously accepted by going to the DB Comedy donation page at fracturedatlas.org. Donations are tax-deductible to the fullest extent allowed by law. For more information on DB Comedy and The Electables, visit DB Comedy's host page on Simplecast.com. Follow us on Facebook at DB Comedy or Democracy Burlesque, and join us on The Trident Network. Thanks for listening, thanks for downloading,
3: don't forget to subscribe, and don't forget to like.